In 2007, an 11-year-old girl traveled with her soccer team from Ottawa to Laval for a soccer tournament. When she took the field with her teammates, the referee stopped her and told her she couldn't play unless she took off her hijab. Her team withdrew from the tournament. The issue was taken up by the Canadian Soccer Association. It supported the referee's decision, and hijabs were now banned in Canadian soccer. The issue went all the way up to FIFA, the world governing body for soccer. It too supported the ban. Except now, headscarves weren't just prohibited in Canada, they were banned from soccer pitches all over the world. The impact would be felt by thousands of Muslim women and girls everywhere, from U-12 teams in Calgary, all the way up to national and Olympic squads from Iran to France to Australia. FIFA lacked, perhaps among other things, what we refer to as cultural competence. What do we mean by cultural competence? That's coming up in this episode of We Are the Cougars, Diversity and Inclusion Education. Second down and four. Kaepernick shoots it. Fooled everybody. Colin Kaepernick. What a game. Uh, the original name, that's a black man named Cassius Clay was my slave name. I'm no longer a slave. And here comes Robinson trying to steal home. He's safe, says the ump. I went on the courts with just a ball and a racket and a hope, and, and that's all I had. Being a First Nations kid, like, there's not many in the NHL, so I was just thinking, you know, it's, it's a, it would be just a dream come true to get picked by anybody. Hi, and welcome to We Are the Cougars, Diversity and Inclusion Education, a podcast series produced at Mount Royal University. I'm Brad Clark. I teach on issues of race in the media and ethics in the School of Communication Studies. This podcast is coming to you from Mount Royal University, which is located in the traditional territories of the Nitsitapi Blackfoot and the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Siksika, the Bagani, the Gainai, the Sutina, and the Iahe Nakoda. The city of Calgary is also home to the Métis Nation. Cougars Athletics and Recreation condemns racism and oppression. Mount Royal University strives to provide an education and experience that is equitable and inclusive. In this episode, we examine cultural competence, a concept that describes the ability to understand, accept, and appreciate cultural difference. It allows people to interact effectively with each other, even though they come from different backgrounds. We'll get a full picture on cultural competence from Mount Royal's Janelle Morris in a minute. But first, let's tie up some loose ends with the world of international soccer. FIFA, at least back in 2007, stands as an example of low cultural competence. It's actually been described that way in studies on sports administration. The worldwide ban on hijabs was based on that assessment of the U-12 referee back in Laval that a hijab could strangle or injure players. FIFA had absolutely no evidence to support such a draconian decision. In fact, it originally tried to justify the ban as an attempt to stop religious symbolism, but that proved too hard to manage, given the Christian iconography in team uniforms and the tattoos displayed on the arms of the top footballers all around the world. What FIFA failed to consider was the significance of the hijab in the lives of so many. It's, it's a part of a Muslim women's identity. Sports like taekwondo and rugby um, allow the headscarf um, to be worn during their competitive matches. Um, and for the World Game, 
for the you know universal language that is football to to ban uh, a headscarf which will prevent many women from participating in a sport uh, it doesn't make sense Osman Halal was one of the best soccer players of her generation in Australia but couldn't play for her national team because of the ban she was part of the coalition of athletes that pressured FIFA into reversing that policy years later but too late for her to have much of an international career. Soccer can do better, and we'll see a perfect example later in the podcast. In some ways, it's surprising an international organization like FIFA would have such a poor grasp of cultural difference. But it was founded in Europe over a century ago and has brought that European lens to the way it administers soccer. It reversed its policy on the hijab, and there's never been any related injuries. Safety was never the issue. Janelle Morris is not an expert in international sports, but she does have a deep understanding of cultural competence. She's the coordinator of the Academic Strategist Program and runs the peer programs. She also helps lead research and assessment within the Accessibility Services Office. She leads efforts to advance Universal Design for Learning, or UDL. That's the idea that a learning environment should be accessible to all students, whatever their background, instead of the mythical normal student. So I have worked for about 20 years in student services in post-secondary institutions, both here and in Manitoba. And I have also done a lot of work in the area of human rights. A lot of that has been with people who experience disability-related barriers. I've done some national and international research projects. I spent some time in Uganda doing some work around those issues. Her work on campus is shifting to more of a focus on diversity and inclusion. But I have done a lot of work looking at how people with disabilities, for example, are stereotyped uh, and how that then impacts the kinds of programs and services they have access to, uh, how the stigma around disability impacts their participation in the community in general. And so that work has really lent me to a broader understanding of human rights issues in general and diversity issues. That understanding is the foundation for recognizing cultural competence, one of the important concepts associated with diversity and inclusion education. Generally speaking, cultural competence is sort of the willingness and ability to interact with people from a diverse, diverse background, diverse culture. It's about being aware of the culture of others and being able to act in ways that are appropriate and inclusive. But, but more than that, it really starts with this idea of understanding that you are also a part of a culture and your values and belief systems were framed by the culture that you grew up in. And so for some of us who have grown up in a place where we're very much like the majority of people around us. So for example, if you grew up in Canada and, and you happen to be white and you know middle class, then you see yourself reflected all around you and it, and it seems like that's sort of the normal state of being. Uh, and, and 
the, the first step in cultural competency is really to unpack that a little bit, to start to understand that you yourself are shaped by culture. You have a culture, um, your belief systems came from that context, and they're not necessarily normal or even the right way to be, but they are just a way of being. So what does it look like when people lack cultural competence? Well, there's a, there's a continuum, I think, of, of what that looks like. So at the very extreme end of that, we can talk about things like overt racism and bias and uh, discrimination kind of ideas, um, sort of what um, we might call cultural destructiveness. So like an example of that might be something like residential schools where we actually put policies and practices in place to try to destroy a culture. So that's sort of one end of the, con the continuum. And from there, we can go all the way through to things like um, cultural incapacity, where we're not just not thinking about uh, diversity or, or cultural competence in any way. And so we are not intentionally seeking to be destructive, but we have no capacity to serve people of a diverse nature. So for example, uh, not having translation services for people in healthcare or not having an accessible washroom in a place for someone who uses a wheelchair. Those would, they're not intentional, but they exclude people. We, we um, often hear this term, people say that they're, um, they don't see color, for example. So cultural blindness for, is, is sort of a way to describe that. And, and that is um, kind of rooted in good intentions. It's saying that everyone is the same to me. I'm going to treat everybody the same. But what that fails to take into account is the understanding that people's experiences and backgrounds and culture shape their value belief systems and their actions in the way that they the way that they're able to interact in their communities and their places of work in educational settings and treating everyone the same disregards all of those experiences and it also it also can close doors uh, in in access for people. So if you treat everybody the same you assume everybody comes from the same starting place and that's not necessarily true. So until we move into this, this space of cultural competence, we are excluding people, whether we're intentionally doing it or not. We're still creating a system that's set up to favor people who fit into a certain box and um, puts other people at a disadvantage. Why, why aren't people, and I guess, I guess when I say people, talking about normalization, I'm thinking of white people. Why, why aren't white people in particular more aware of their own biases? I think that um, Peggy McIntosh, who uh, wrote an article called Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, um, she was speaking about white privilege uh, and privilege in general, put it best when she said that there are all of these systems in place, all of these privileges in place that we are not aware of and more that we're not meant to be aware of. So we don't, we don't necessarily see these things as, as privilege because they just are, and they're just sort of part of our normal existence. So for example, we can look at the people who are in our workplace or the people who are in managerial positions. We can look at our politicians. We look at our, the people on our TV screens and on our movie screens. 
And most of those people look like us if we happen to be white. And so we don't see it. We don't see that that's an issue because we are represented. We don't feel left out. And that's part of what this invisible privilege is. We have an entire episode dedicated to privilege in this podcast series, and we invite you to give it a listen. As you're probably starting to understand, there is a lot of overlap among the concepts. The point here is, if we don't understand our own privilege and our own biases, we're going to struggle to connect with people who are different from us. I think most people don't overtly display racist tendencies. You know, we might have on occasion, you know, that uncle at our Christmas meal who tells a racist joke, but that I don't think is happening as much anymore. But what we do have are things that we would call microaggressions that happen. And again, not that anyone is purposely trying to hurt another, but that they are without examining the the motivation behind what they're saying um, are are harming another person. A a good example of a microaggression is um, if you ask someone, uh, a person of color, where are you from? And they say Calgary, and then you say, but where are you really from, right? So you're, you're making an assumption there that they can't possibly just be from Calgary. The Huffington Post recently explored this idea in a video. It makes it seem like you're implying that I don't belong here when I was born and raised in Canada. Like, just because I'm Asian doesn't mean I'm not Canadian. Or another really good example is, again, if you see a person of color and you say, oh, winters must be really hard for you. You must really struggle in the wintertime, which is not something that's negatively intended. It's really it's really just sort of a conversational thing. And you think, you know, maybe maybe this person needs an extra coat. I don't know what you think. But in any case, hearing that for the hundredth time for that person is uh, is a form of microaggression. It's. calling attention to something based solely on the the color of their skin. And over and over again, over time, those things build up uh, to become hurtful. Being culturally competent means checking the assumptions we make based on our biases. FIFA's ban on the hijab was based on an incredible assumption that Muslim women could simply decide not to wear the headscarf. But that thinking fails to take into consideration its strong religious significance. When FIFA did allow hijabs in 2014, it also permitted Jewish men to wear kippahs and Sikh men to wear their turbans. So what biases were in place that limited the inclusion of large groups of human beings from playing sports? You can start to see the challenges for people outside the dominant group. There's this notion of biculturation that people who don't belong to the dominant or the majority group uh, have to navigate. So they have to not only understand the culture in which they grew up or that they that they exist within their family unit, but they also have to understand this sort of dominant culture. And they have to always be balancing between these two kind of worldviews. So it, it creates an, a lot of emotional labor for people who are having to always think about what part of myself is okay to reveal in this particular situation. And, you know, you can think of for example, someone who might be LGBTQ+, who is in a, a workplace function and has to decide, is it okay for me 
to refer to this person as my husband or my partner? Or is that not safe for me to say in this particular context? So there's always this emotional labor going on of, of trying to figure out where is it okay for me to reveal this part of my identity and where is it not? And I think the same thing can be true of race, yeah. Dolly Thickboom has experienced this firsthand. She plays middle for Mount Royal's women's volleyball team and is in her third year studying sociology. Dolly says as a black person walking into a room, she often feels all eyes on her. It's affected me in ways that I feel like I have to overcompromise to make people around me comfortable. So I'll find myself being too nice or just doing the most to make sure that people around me, especially the white people around me, don't feel like I'm a threat. And it shouldn't be like that. I think one of the ways that we can start to look at our own biases and our own understanding of, of culture is through the model of the, um, the cultural iceberg, which was coined uh, based on the work of Edward Hall uh, starting in 1976, where he used the metaphor of the iceberg, which we know, of course, only about 10% of the iceberg is, is what we see above the surface and about 90% is floating under the water and is difficult to see. So this is a metaphor for, for understanding culture in that there are some things about culture that we can see easily when we meet somebody. So things like language, arts, literature, religion is sometimes pretty apparent, um, music, the way people dress, games, sports, uh, cooking is a pretty common one that we see above above the level of the water. So these are really apparent. Um, but under the surface are uh, a lot of things that we don't necessarily know just by looking at a person or by first meeting a person. And, and these things are very complex and they include things like uh, notions of modesty, how we view child raising, uh, relationships to things, animals, plants, uh, sort of the natural world, world. courtship practices, um, concepts of justice can, can differ based on belief systems, um, ideas around gender, uh, around mental health, cooperation, uh, things like making eye contact, things like uh, being comfortable speaking up in a meeting um, or asserting your individuality. All of these things exist below the surface of the water. And so if we don't make an effort to really understand different cultures, then we will miss all of that complexity and exclude people from being able to really participate and bring their whole selves to the participation of whatever enterprise we're in. Jana Lee says we can become more culturally competent, but we have to be willing to do the work and it will take us out of our comfort zones. I think the first thing that we all need to do is examine our own biases. And that is very uncomfortable. It starts with educating ourselves, uh, educating ourselves on the, the history that we maybe didn't get in school. You know, some of us uh, of a certain generation and older 
didn't didn't get the true story of what happened to Indigenous people in Canada, for example. I think we still don't understand. We still don't have a good education system around Canada's history of slavery, for example, or some of the incredibly destructive things we did to uh, Black people in Canada. So educate ourselves and really really consider what our own biases are, examine why we believe what we believe. Um, so that, that has to happen first. And then we have to move into a place of action. So we have to figure out how in our everyday lives, in our workplaces, in our educational settings as parents, how can we then apply some of those learnings in, in trying to improve things and trying to change the situation? So whether that is looking at sort of an individual change or even trying to impact the systems change, the system to change. Uh, so for example, if you're a person who gets to hire other people, are you considering diversity in those hiring practices? Are you asking questions about cultural competency in interviews in your own workplaces? Uh, if you're working with a team of people, are you making sure that the way that information is presented includes everybody and and leaves a space that's safe for other people to raise their voice or, or have their voice heard. Safe spaces allow people to be comfortable in expressions of their culture, their spirituality, their religion, their sexual identity. There's respect for difference. A safe space can be a dressing room or the gym or the rink or even the soccer pitch. A soccer game in Jordan between Shabab Al-Ordan and Amman, an important match in the Women's Club Championship. Most of the players have their hair pulled back under headbands or in buns, but two or three are wearing hijabs. In a fight for possession of the ball, an Amman player gets clipped by the arm of her opponent and her hijab comes off. What happens next is a powerful example of cultural competence. Three players from the opposing team ignore the ball and huddle around the woman in the hijab so she can put it back in place without spectators or anyone else seeing. Two more Shabab players join the scrum and the Amman player is completely hidden from view as she gets her headscarf back on. After a few moments, the huddle breaks up, play resumes and the crowd applauds. There was always room for the hijab in soccer, and now players understand its importance for the women who wear it. the Cougars Diversity and Inclusion Education podcast is produced by Cougar Athletics and Recreation. Alex Brody, Stu Blay, and me. We'd like to thank Ornella Nzinduki Imana, Marty Clark, Steve Kootenay Jobin, and Janelee Morris for their insights, wisdom, and knowledge. We'd also like to thank members of the Cougars BIPOC Committee who initiated and guided this project. More information about the We Are the Cougars Diversity and Inclusion Education podcast is available online at mrucougars.com. I'm Brad Clark. Thanks for listening.
Thank you.